Okay, this morning, I think uh, the best way to handle this pericope, that's a narrative unit, is to read the whole section because if I just start in on focusing on a certain thing, it's, it goes from uh, verse 23 to 41, but it's all about one event. So the beginning part of it will make more sense if we have the whole thing. So what I'm going to do is read it and then analyze the narrative unit and why it says what it does. So here is, this, the, for the New American Standard, I'll just read the whole section. What happens here is Artemis had some issues. Artemis was a goddess in Ephesus, and the people making money off of her uh, weren't very happy. About that time, this is Luke writing in Acts 19, starting with verse 23. About that time, there occurred no small disturbance concerning the way. You can follow with me in your Bibles. And for a, for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, Men, you know that our prosperity depends on this business. You see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people saying gods made with hands are no gods at all. Maybe I could flip through these if you don't. Where are we? Verse 26. Yeah, there it is. There we go. If you follow along with the printout. <clears throat> then they went on and uh, say, <laughs> verse 27, not only is there a danger this trade of ours falls into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless and that she whom all of Asia and the world worship will be dethroned from her magnificence. They're worried about the dethroning of Artemis. Verse 28. And when they heard this, and were filled with rage, they began crying out, saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So they are starting a disturbance, and mobs gather very easily, especially in the Middle East. Um, to this day, that's the case. The city was filled with confusion, and they rushed with one accord into the theater, dragging along Gaius and uh, Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. So they, they didn't have Paul, but they had two of his cohorts who were Christian from Macedonia. They're still in Asia Minor here. Verse 30. And when Paul wanted to go into the assembly, the disciples would not let him. Also, some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and repeatedly urged him not to venture into the theater. Now, 
in this case, the co-workers thought it was a bad idea and they didn't want him to go in there. I'll, I'll explain why that turned out to be wise counsel and what Luke is telling us in the bigger scheme. All right? Verse 32. So then some were shouting one thing and some another. For the assembly was in confusion and the majority did not know for what reason they came together. We still see that, don't we? There's something happening. Let's all run out there and start doing something. What are, what, are, what are we protesting here? Oh, it's those Christians over here. Whatever it is, it's, it's not all that atypical. Some of the crowd concluded it was Alexander, since the Jews had put him forward, and having motioned with his hand, Alexander was intending to make a defense to the assembly. Now, Alexander was Jewish. This is what we find out. Verse 34. But when they recognized he was a Jew, a single outcry arose from them all as they shouted for about two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So they have a two-hour political rally for Artemis. Whether one scholar, now this was a polytheistic deity of some sort. I'll show if you want. I've got a whole bunch of slides from the that show that this is historical, and I can just show those. There'd be so many of them if I put them all in here, be hard to follow. So they're having this shout shouting match for Artemis, because the by the way the temple of Artemis was one of the wonders of the ancient world. Did you notice that the moonshot they want to do is named Artemis? Pretty ironic, isn't it? They thought Artemis fell from heaven, which an image of Artemis, which was a meteor. Now we want to put Artemis up on the moon here. Verse 35, and after the quieting the crowd, now the civil authority comes in. After quieting the crowd, the town clerk said, Men of Artemis, what man is there after all who does not know that the city of Artemis, or Ephesus, is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis? That's verse 35. And of the image which fell down from heaven. There it is. So that was their main, um, how would you say it, social cohesion of the city based on their understanding and that's why so much effort went into making the temple for Artemis, and that's what made them a unique city. So what had happened was Paul had preached the gospel there, and some people were converted, and a number of people were being convinced that gods made with hands are no gods at all. And, well, so then Artemis isn't a goddess. She can't do anything. And this is going to ruin their silver business. All right. Verse 36. Let's keep going here. So since these are undeniable facts, you ought to keep calm and to do nothing rash. This is a city clerk, civil authority. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of our goddess. So then, 
verse 38, if Demetrius and the craftsmen who are with him have a complaint against any man, the courts are in session and proconsuls are available, let them bring charges against one another. So the civil authority, once a Jewish man stood with the Christians and said, you know, we need to calm this down. He stood up for it because the Jews rejected idolatry just as much as the Christians did. And the city clerk is able to settle everybody down. We've got courts. If you really think that the Christians are ruining your business, you can go deal with it in court. That was the civil authority. Verse 39. But if you want anything beyond this, it should be settled in the lawful assembly. Verse 40. For indeed, we are in danger of being accused of a riot. Notice earlier it's called no small disturbance. That might be answering your question. Brian asked, why is it sort of no small disturbance rather than a tumult? Probably to contrast with this. Um, We're in danger of being accused of a riot. If what happened wasn't already a riot, a riot could be really bad, and and it could have gotten worse in connection with the day's events, since there's no real cause for it. And in this connection, we'll be unable to account for this disorderly gathering. In other words, to the Roman authorities. The civil authority is under somebody else. And one thing we see through Acts is that as we go forward in Acts, the civil authorities end up aiding Paul. And that happens again and again. And that's not surprising because when you're brought before kings, it's for an opportunity for your testimony. And so as we go to the end of Acts, Paul kept appealing, which, because why? The point is, you'll be my witnesses, Judea, or Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. And Jesus appeared objectively to Paul and said, you must be my witness in Rome. That's where it's going. And so this is how it's going to get there. So let's go on. There's no real cause. After saying this, he dismissed the assembly. So that was the end of their two hours, and they um, averted what could have been a worse situation. Now, we have civil authorities like that today. <laughs> well, the point of civil authorities, in a biblical point, is to make sure that during the church age, the gospel goes where God wants it to go. And it's also not allowing Babel or Babylon to be reconstructed. Now, that's a biblical worldview. If you go back to Genesis, the reason for the table of nations was in reaction to they wanted to be all one and reach into heaven. So if you really want to what do you say, pan out or come look at it from a really wide perspective? Ever since Babel, the world wants to reconstruct what they couldn't have, right? 
they wanted to reach up into the heavens and have direct contact with the gods. So that's the really big picture. But God ordained national boundaries and civil governments to maintain not sinlessness or the kingdom or anything like that, but uh, an orderly, you know, in a very, how would you say it, non-post-millennial sense, system so that the gospel can go and the one new man will come into existence, which is the church. That's Ephesians 2.15. So if you look at the broader picture, the reason we're still here, the reason history is going on and we're still in the times of the Gentiles is for the gospel to penetrate to all of the different peoples in the world and they might hear the truth of the gospel. That's revealed in scripture. So here was, um, there's a bigger picture here, and I'm going to tell you that in a moment. I really had a great breakthrough the other day, and I spent about four hours digging through scripture and Luke Acts, and I'll share some of the things that I saw there. This idea, why, let's ask ourselves this question. Stand back, and I won't get so much feedback. The question is this. Why here did they say to Paul, don't go? Because he knew he was going to suffer. That was told to him in uh, Acts chapter 9. He's going to suffer. He's going to be opposition. He's going to testify. But why not here? Be, uh, let me explain why. From Luke 9:51, all the way to uh, Jesus going in Jerusalem, there's a theme in Luke X, and it go, goes before that, but the travel narrative goes from Luke 9:51 to his entry. And the theme is, Jerusalem rejects the prophets that are sent to her. Okay? And there's other sub-themes, including unexpected people coming to faith. And this is prophesied in Luke 1 and 2 and 3 by unexpected people. Anna, uh, Zechariah, Zechariah, the Simeon. Look at all the things. Uh, this one will be for the rise of fall and fall of many in Israel. And so there's a, this theme about Jerusalem. Luke Acts is focused on Jerusalem and then on to the end of the year to all the nations. Matthew has a slight different focus. There he's preaching through Matthew. But let's not lose sight of that. I believe, and I, and I have some good scholars uh, that, that help point this out, the reason for not going into this and getting stuck in the riot, it would have got worse if Paul went in there. And it was the civil authorities that calmed it down. Now, he does go into Jerusalem. And later, they urged Paul not to go there, or at least through Agabus. But he said, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? He must go to Jerusalem. The disturbance in Jerusalem is way worse than what happens here in Ephesus. And what happens in Jerusalem 
covers many chapters. So Jerusalem is the focus. And Jerusalem rejects the prophets sent to her. I believe that there will be a restored Israel in the future. That's clear early in Acts, Acts chapter 1. But now we're in a church age. And Paul ends up going to Rome, and he was told by Jesus that's where he's going to end up. Now, I think Artemis is really interesting in her own right. And I, if, I have an option here. I can Let me give you an outline, and you can decide if you want to see the slides that visually depict what happened there with artifacts from the silversmiths and what have you. What we have here in a bigger picture of Acts are scenes, type scenes. And these type scenes show reactions. <laughs> the first one is in Philippi. Maybe just jot this down. The first one is in Acts sixteen nineteen. Let me show you the type scenes. Acts 16, 19 through 23. There's, there's in fact, five of these in Acts in connection with Paul. The last one's Jerusalem, which is the most profound. Philippi. Now, remember, there was a spirit cast out of a, a, a soothsayer, a slave girl. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone... They seized Paul and Silas and dragged him into the marketplace before the authorities. Again, civil authorities get involved. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, these men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews. Notice the preview, because in, uh, yeah, Jerusalem is another one, but even in Ephesus we have, Alexander, a Jew, siding with the Christians against Artemis. Okay, so here they are not quite sure the difference between Christians and Jews, but these are Jewish Christians and are proclaiming customs which is not lawful for us to accept or observe being Romans. That's in Philippi, Acts 16, 21. 22, the crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. And when they had struck them of many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them. Now, something else happens there. But in that case, they beat Paul. Now, I, I've taught on all these things, but the next one, Thessalonica, Acts 17. I'll give you a little bit of this. According to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reason from the scriptures preach Christ let me just go on verse 5 but the Jews becoming jealous and taking some wicked men from the marketplace formed a mob set the city in uproar it's another type scene and they dragged him out they were beating them they've upset the world they've come here Jason welcomed them and they act contrary to the decrees of Caesar so Again and again, we have these mob scenes that are ignited because the gospel's preached. All right? And then in Corinth, Acts 18, 
where he taught. And Acts 18.13 saying, This man persuades, persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. Uh, and there was another scene with synagogues, Jews, Christians, and civil authorities. Another one here. They're all going somewhere. That's my bigger point. The ultimate of the five type scenes is Jerusalem. And Jerusalem in Acts is where it really all explodes. Okay? And it, got, it was so bad that James, the half-brother, I believe that's the half-brother of Jesus. No, I may have that wrong. I didn't read that. I think that's right. But James in Jerusalem, I think that's the one who wrote the book of James, he warned Paul, we had 3,000 men who were zealous for the law. So there were Christians against Paul in Jerusalem. And the battle was whether Christianity was going to be the one new man consisted of, consisting of converted Jews and Gentiles Paul speaks of in the book of Ephesians, or if Judaism, Messianic Judaism was going to be a separate religion and not actually go to the nations. Now, what we see when we get to the one in Jerusalem is that Paul went to extraordinary ends that wouldn't even be required of him when he goes there. He takes a vow, shaves his head, goes in, and comes in as about as Jewish as you can come in, following the law he's not really under. And when he gets there, they still react to him. They accuse him of bringing a Gentile into the temple. I believe, and I'm going to lay this out there after several decades of studying Luke Acts, that is to accentuate the reality that Jerusalem rejects the prophets that are sent to her. And that Jesus was rejected, the perfect one, the sinless one, the holy one of Israel, the Messiah, and his messenger Paul, no matter what he did, was falsely accused, and there was nothing he could do that would stop this from blowing up in Jerusalem. I believe that this scene here tells us a lot about the world they lived in, but it shows the reason Paul didn't go in was that Jerusalem is where he's going to end up. Go ahead. And Jesus had already told him that they rejected me, they'll reject you. Yes. Now, um, this is amazing. Let me just say it's something that is foundational to biblical Christianity. What we have that tells us about God, his nature, his purposes, salvation, hope, redemption, the church, is Scripture. And the Holy Spirit inspired the Scripture. As the Holy Spirit says in in Hebrews, and the Scripture is cited. Now in a few weeks I'll be talking about not going beyond what's written, which is cited by Paul. And the fact is, that the better we understand what God said, the better we understand the scripture, the more powerful God will work in our lives. And 
to that end, I would agree with what Luther said concerning the Holy Spirit comes to us through the word. That's not limiting what the Holy Spirit, God the Spirit, does, but it's showing how we know what he does. In providence, God rules over everything in the universe, including allowing evil to happen. But what we know is what he's told us in Scripture. Therefore, in history, the attack has always been against translating the Scripture into the common vernacular. I was just struck as I was reading church history, rereading my church history books, how Tyndale, about the time that Britain split Henry VIII, this wicked king, uh, there's a lot of real ugly, nasty intrigue going on. He was hung and then burned for the sin of translating the Bible into the common vernacular. And Rome, in a weird, perverse, right, right way, understood that if the people had the Bible that they could read, the papacy and the whole system was in danger. Just as much as Artemis was in danger of being dethroned from her magnificence by the gospel being preached by Paul, the idolatry of Rome at, at the time of the Tyndale was under threat by what? Now they had the Greek and it could be translated into English or other languages, German, as Luther would do later. During that time, Tyndale is martyred for doing that. And the only reason before him Whitcliffe wasn't was they had two popes. And they were, there was too much intrigue going between the two different popes to deal with Tyndale. They had to dig him up later and deal with him after he was dead. But dear ones, never lose sight of this. Nothing will do more powerful work of saving the lost, sanctifying the saved, and helping us understand the world we live in than the Word of God taught in the common vernacular clearly and with authority. That is how God saves. And some of the most popular things that are out there are just so astray. Uh, we've got a very humbling email. Uh, Jessica, uh, it was sent to me and mentioned Jessica. Um, a person from the UK um, was listening to our material on Dutch sheets. Is that right? And very, very touching. He said a lifesaver. Um, and then what happened the same week was we saw Dutch Sheets, who we've been doing a series on, making decrees. Okay? So rather than pr humbly praying to God, like the disciples did, take note of thy threat, thy th thy, these threats, extend thy hand, give boldness, we have 
intercessors who have the audacity to make decrees about political matters that God is supposed to enforce. And he says, here's my decree. You know, this, is, this is horrible. What was one of his decrees? Well, it had something to do, we probably would agree. It was about Title IX. Was that it, Jessica? He made a decree about Title IX. Title IX, by the way, is women's athletics in universities. That's fine to discuss that. But who is sovereign over history, and how do we know how God works? Let me give you an example. This is going to come up in a... I'm going to be shot for a video to a documentary about the New Apostolic Reformation, and Sheets is part of that. Let me explain this. Have you heard of the story, the, the event literally that happened when... Ahab, Ahab wanted to go into war. Do you remember that one, Eric? Yeah. The lying spirit? Yeah. Somebody look that up. Let me give an illustration. I don't know if this will work for the what I want to share with people about spiritual warfare. This is not more powerful to tell God what he should do. Why? Because God allows things for a reason that has a greater purpose to bring messianic salvation. And we are not God's counselor. So if I issue a decree and expect God to enforce my decree, which the fact that somebody could do that and not even blush is shocking. It's just read the story of Nebuchadnezzar. Who's on the throne? Did you find it, Eric? I did. Go go ahead. This is uh, 1 Kings 22, verse 29. And I could, I don't know how far I'll have to read here, but you want... Maybe just tell the story and then get to the point. Yeah, the false prophets that were prophesying in Israel, of course, they tell King Ahab, yes, God is going to deliver the enemies into your hand, go up to battle. Well, then Jehoshaphat inquires, isn't there one prophet, Micaiah, and we haven't really looked at what he has to say. Well, of course, Micaiah, he's a true prophet, and he knows Ahab's going to his destruction. So Ahab doesn't want to hear anything from him. Well, lo and behold, Micaiah says, you're going to fall in battle. That's exactly what happens. And so you see that the true prophet of God spoke something that wasn't very popular, but it was true. And uh, today... Yeah, they have... go to the point where the we get to see into the divine council. Oh, yes. Okay, so then uh, what we have is how is this going to happen? Well, what you have is this divine council meeting where Micaiah sees the throne room of God and there's a bunch of, uh, you know, the, the divine council and God uses a lying spirit put in the mouth of the false prophets and those false prophets are the ones who enticed Ahab to battle. Right. So the false prophets are really satanic mouthpieces. They're being used by the demonic realm. God sits enthroned and he uses those demons' deception for his purposes. So he'll allow deception to go forth to bring about his okay. sovereign purposes. And that was in what passage? Uh, this is 1 Kings 22. I, it's, um, 17? 22 what? 19 through. Yeah, 19, 19 through. Okay, so yeah, there this you go. is Thank very you. essential. Now, go back to the book of Job and think about that. What happens in Job? Another 
look into the divine council. And what happens there? Satan says, well, yeah, there's Job. He's serving God. Well, he's, not, he's only doing it because you're making his life easy. Take away, let me go take away his, his uh, well-being, I'm summarizing, and then he'll curse you to his face, to your face. But what happens in Job? These things happen. But Job, he didn't know much more than his counselors did, but eventually God actually speaks. Now, that's why his word is so powerful. We wouldn't know this had God not told us. Now, think about this for a moment. What if the New Apostolic Reformation false prophets were around in the time of Ahab? And they made a decree rebuking the lying spirits. They would be rebuking God's intention to use that to bring judgment. I don't know whether, that's so clear to me, but I don't know why they don't see this. They have the Bible to read it. Why should I decree to God how he runs his universe? Okay, so we know that one said, I'll be a lying spirit in the mouth of his prophets. Go and do that. Because Ahab was being judged. He was a wicked king. That's how God runs his universe. Now, we don't always know that. So who are we to invite ourselves to the council meeting? We're not invited to. This is arrogance of the highest order. It's utter wickedness, and it's directly addressed in Second Peter and in Jude. So it isn't just my analysis of what's going on. It's warned about in Second Peter 2 and in Jude. And those who would do spiritual mapping, uh, decrees into the heavenlies about what spirit's doing what, and are going into a realm, Colossians calls it entering, having entered. They go into a realm they're not supposed to be in. And as we sit on the radio YouTube show talking about this, just going through these scriptures, people are coming to Christ. Because the truth sets people free. We are here as God is saving Gentiles and Jews and making them one new man. Go ahead, Jessica. I think it's important to bring out, too, the why. Why would he decree this? Why are they binding spirits? Why are they doing all this? One of the things that we've been talking about on CIC is, in their view, God needs us to do that. God needs us to enforce his victory. God needs us to decree things. It's almost like God's standing in the background and he can't act until we do something. And in the episodes that we just recorded last week, he comes right out and says, what is lacking in Christ is us. Right. So, so yeah, that's Sheets. is a very nice guy, disarming, charming, funny stories, is saying that Christ is lacking. And we're going to add to it. And so what we did is we looked at what what's lacking is the suffering that Christians go through in church history as they preach the gospel. This is serious. If we, the, according to Second Peter 2 and Jude, those who do that sort of thing are called blasphemers. That's right. Okay. So God says, okay, you go be a lying spirit in the mouth 
of his prophets. And somebody says, I rebuke you, lying spirit. We did our spiritual mapping. We're going to stop this. They don't, they're, they're fighting against God. And this un, unstated assumption is God can't run his own universe unless I tell him how to do it. And the thing that happens, and it's happened since I started in 1983 teaching verse by verse through the Bible, the most virulent opposition that comes against us is from Christians. Because they're saying, you're trying to limit God. I know for a fact I cannot limit God. But I can humble myself under the mighty hand of God by his grace and honor him and admit we need him. That verse, call on me in the day of trouble. I will rescue you and you will honor me. That's what the Lord said. Us being rescued by God honors God. Us adding to what God cannot do because something's lacking in Christ dishonors God. And when that email came, I, I thought, wow. He said he'd believed that things most of his life, but now, thank God, now I understand. Go ahead. You emphasized in your Providence CIC article and also on other numerous occasions that we don't know God's providence until after it happens. Yes. We don't see it until later. Job, Job and his comforters were trying to figure it out. They didn't know. They weren't at the meeting. In Job, early in Job. And his wife didn't help out too much. Her advice, curse God and die. Okay, put that one on your refrigerator, right? Curse God and die. No, that's not, that's not good advice. But in the end, he said, oh, now I know. Nebuchadnezzar found out too. This is Babylon the Great. Yeah, uh, Luann, uh, a couple different things. Luann. Anyhow, um, as we look at this, God is at work. Now, there wasn't an angel appeared to Paul and say, don't go to the theater, but his Christian friends were used because ultimately he's going to go to Jerusalem. Yes, Luann. I just kind of wanted to make a distinction, too, between, say, Islam and Buddhism, because um, in that worldview, if somebody is suffering, they're just supposed to let them sit in their suffering because God, their God is working through that suffering. They have to pay for their own sins. Right. And so um, in Providence, like you've said, good and bad happens. But the Bible's very clear. You know, bad is not necessarily a good thing. I mean, it's still going to work to God's glory. But the Bible tells us, if you see widows and orphans. That's an awful thing. They've lost family members. We're supposed to take care of them. Yes. So it gives us, or if you see your brother in need, don't just walk by and say, oh, that's good enough. God's working in their life. No, we're supposed to help them. Christians so, do that. Right. And so it's a big distinction between those false religions and Christianity, right. which cares for those. You're absolutely right. No, we're, the pagans believe in fate. We believe in what's revealed which is what's written in Scripture, the moral law of God, which is revealed, and then God providentially ruling over his own universe to bring forth what's revealed is ultimately God's going to restore Israel. And there's going to be, you know, in between, it's really bad. And there's going to be the eternal order. But we're now, 
See, people say, well, if you believe the way you believe, then you believe in fate. We're robots. That's, what Bible are you reading? We are making decisions with as much gravity and concern as anyone. None of us is for suffering. None of us want our relatives to be sad or hurt or poor or anything. We want the lost to be saved, and we preach the gospel. But the word of God is how God works. What's revealed, we need to take seriously. The divine counsel is revealed. That it's a sin to invite yourself to the meeting is revealed. That the gospel is to be preached is revealed. Uh, yes, Peter. So, in essence, uh, the Jews, the Pharisees, the leaders of the day, they were executing really, in one respect, false discernment in that they were taking their faith back over and acting as if they were God. In other words, a man-centered religion rather than trusting in you mean, God's uh, providence. As far as rejecting Messiah? Uh, well, that as well as Paul in his day. Yeah, yeah we, the revealed part is in um, Acts 1.8. You'll be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the other most part of the earth. How that happens is part of providence, and as they go through the providence, there's divine intervention. Was Peter in the Bible inclined to go preach to Gentiles? No. How did he get inclined? The vision, right? The sheet coming down? Okay. So God intervenes. He still does. Okay? And it's revealed that God was going to save Gentiles, but they couldn't believe it. But the Jews in charge of the day were acting on their behalf to maintain they made themselves their happy. authority. Yeah. Okay. They couldn't tolerate fellowship with non-kosher believers. That's what happens. Yes, Laverne. I just thought you mentioned the sheet coming down was one verification to go to Gentiles, but wasn't, who was it that was preaching at Cornelius and all of the Gentiles began Peter. to speak in tongues? Yeah. So that's another confirmation, so to speak. Yeah. And so Acts is telling us that what Jesus said actually happens. In some cases, there's divine intervention directly. In other cases, providence. See, we have uh, what is written, Scripture, um, Providence, God's ruling his own universe, and then divine interventions are going al along the way as people are converted, doors open and close, we go places. What is derailing us is the idea that God needs us or he can't get the job done. Okay? And that's what we are doing the radio shows about. And even We've got uh, some of the things that are stated are so egregious. Go ahead, Harry. You know, I was going to just talk about hearing from the Spirit. One of the things a false teachers like Dutch Sheets does is he distorts the Spirit by misreading Scripture. Talking about what is lacking in Christ, that comes from Colossians 124. Right. We, Bob we did a great job, and I know you guys have done a great CAC article on it. But if everyone just turns there real quick, Colossians 124. 
Paul says there, he says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Well, Dutchie's... He has a whole section where defines the whole book. Now we do our part. So we have to do our part yeah, because... Yeah, what's lacking something. is our part has to be done now. Right. What's interesting is as scholars look at what does Paul mean by lacking in the afflictions of Christ, the better reading of that is that there's so much suffering that the people of God will go through because they belong to Christ, and one day that will be filled up. And one place you see that is actually in Acts chapter 3, where notice in 3.19, Peter says, Therefore repent and return so that there's a purpose. Why should you repent? Well, so that your sins may be wiped out in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Well, he talks about the coming, and he says also to send Jesus, the Christ appointed to you. Well, wait a minute. I thought the sending of Christ was the predetermined plan of God on his date. Well, the idea that Peter has is that there's a filling up of all of those who will repent, And once that last person has repented, Christ is sent. You also see in Genesis 15 the idea of filling up the iniquity of the Amorites. It's Genesis 15, I think, verse 16. See if I get this right. Yeah, it says, Then in the fourth generation they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet filled up. So in God's providence, there's a filling up of the total iniquity that he will tolerate. There's a filling up of the entire amount of suffering Christians will go through. And there's a filling up of the entire amount of people that will repent. Once that filling comes to its fruition, then Christ is sent. So what Paul was saying is that because he suffered so much, he was filling a little bit of that bucket himself. I mean, he was filling a lot of it. But for Dutch sheets to take that and say, well, there's something lacking in Christ, therefore you have to do something. You have to start bossing the demonic realm around. Do you see how that ambiguity, he's playing on that, he's distorting what the Spirit has clearly taught in the Scriptures, and he's a false mouthpiece for Satan himself. Well, right. Let me give an easier version, really easy. What is it that causes suffering from during the church age or the times of the Gentiles? The fact that Christ hasn't returned and ended it. Is that right? Okay, so that's why. So how do we fill it up? We don't have to say, no, even Romans 8.28, we haven't got to that yet. We have to tell God how to get the universe to to work right. And then there's these stories. Maybe you've heard them. Stories. You get a revelation in this world of... This is what's going to happen in one of them was Guatemala. God told me that this is going to happen, that's going to happen. And then I went into the, and said no, and started making these decrees, and this is how it's going to be. And then eventually, yeah, and then you talk to Satan directly. And as we've said for decades now, how do you get out from under Satan? Not by talking to Satan but by getting out of his domain from the domain of darkness transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. And now under the son who is the intercedes for us, we can tell him we, I'm not saying you can't, you must. In fact, we should go, uh, excuse me, Hebrews four sixteen. 
He cares for us. He's a compassionate Savior. He sits at the right hand of the majesty on high. God the Son, Psalm 110, verse 1, he intercedes for us. And we can tell him what we're going through. And he hears us. And what happens is ultimately for our perfection as we ultimately the resurrection to get us through to glory. But if we adopt an unbiblical worldview where Christ is lacking, we have to add things. We have to get revelations in our mind that may or may not be from God. We have to tell God what to do and try to run the divine counsel. And then if things go bad, now, Mr. Sheets doesn't say the negative side of it because he has all positive stories. But when people get old enough, whoever they are, things go bad. And what do people think when that happens? I failed God. Or God failed me. It didn't work out. What did I do wrong? I've heard more people in the hospital dying that were part of the movement that I used to be in. I'm passionate about this because I was as bad as anybody else in that movement. And I got out and started teaching the Bible. Why? Out of desperation. This thing came through town. Whoop, that didn't work out. This thing came through town. That didn't work out. And in the debris, they even justify the debris. The debris would be hurting people in bad things. And one teacher said, well, the waves are like the tide coming in and the move of God is coming in and here it all comes and then when it goes back out, there's stuff laying around. But the debris was some saint on her deathbed saying in tears, what did I do wrong? Why is this happening? Two of us had been in it. said, Grandma, you, did, you didn't do something wrong. I mean, honestly, the lady that was saying that, as far as we could tell, utterly virtuous. I know she was a sinner like everybody else, but do we want to leave our elderly thinking they failed God? Because you listen to the teachers, they don't have problems unless you find out they have a pacemaker. (laughs) Um, But the fact is, it's not true. Everything that happens, including our suffering, is part of filling up the truth of the gospel. And so in, later in Acts, when Paul says, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? When they tried to persuade him not to go to Jerusalem. This is all headed to Jerusalem. I got five minutes. Let me show you something I found this week. Uh, use lawyer talk, pursuant to our discussion last week. I was thinking Samaria. And so I went back through and I printed out sections of the travel narrative, which goes from Luke 9.51 to the entry in Luke 19. Now, before that was the Mount Transfiguration. Who was on the Mount Transfiguration? Peter, James, and John. So right after that, in Luke 9, that's 9.31, through the end of that section. Then starting with Luke 9.51, the travel narrative, it says, when the days were approaching 
for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. Now, determined there is a strong word. Jesus is determined to go to Jerusalem. Later, Paul is. Now, only Jesus' redemption, suffering is redemptive, uh, absolutely, because he's the sinless Savior. Filling up the sufferings is going to Jerusalem and suffering, not vicariously for somebody else's sins, but to walk in the steps of Christ with the gospel. So as he was, these, for his ascension, we're approaching. So he's ascending not just to Jerusalem. There's a plan words. You go up to Jerusalem. You also go up to heaven. So he ascends to Jerusalem. He's crucified. Then he ascends to heaven after revealing the Great Commission. He was determined to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messages ahead of him. And they went and entered a village of the Samaritans. Now, there's a reason Samaritans show up so often in Luke. Because the Samaritans, Samaria is part of the Great Commission. And they didn't want to go there. They're the enemy. They're the, uh, how would you say it? They're half-brothers that are dishonored God by they had the wrong place to worship. And so he entered a village of Samaritans to make arrangements for Jesus, for him. But look at verse Luke 9:53. But they did not receive him because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. Why did the Samaritans reject Jesus traveling toward Jerusalem? They hated Jerusalem and the Jews. They, they worshiped somewhere else. Was it Gerizim? Yeah, they worshiped Gerizim. No, we don't want that one. We like Gerizim. Verse 54. Notice this. This is just blew me away this week. And when the disciples, James and John, saw this, now they were two that had been there at the transfiguration, and they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Now, I realize that uh, I've sometimes felt that way in traffic. (laughs) I said years ago, preaching, if Christians had that power, there'd be ashes all over everywhere every time somebody ran a stop sign in front of you. But if it's us, we go, oh, oops, I missed that one. Somebody else does it. Now, there's a section that probably wasn't in the original, but Jesus rebuked them is the part that was. Jesus rebuked them. Now, think about the narrative later in, that we were talking about last week where, the, where they went down from, was, it was Jerusalem, right? Is that what we were discussing? Okay. Why the delay? And it's part of... Luke's of God's purpose to bring this one new man into existence. John, now here's Peter and John to come down, but Peter, James, and John were there. James and John wanted the fire to come down. Peter, the sons of thunder, is that right? So Peter comes down, John comes down, and now they no longer want to call down the fire of judgment, but to affirm that the better fire the Holy Spirit, you'd be baptized with the Holy Spirit of fire, would come to Samaritans and they'd be part of the one new man. I didn't see that till last week in that light. So it was interesting discussion, but isn't that amazing in, in the light of all of this, that God 
uh, did this and inspired. Luke Acts is utterly brilliant and it's scripture and it's inspired by the Holy Spirit. So this is what we're learning here. Paul did not go into the theater because had he done so, the likely reason, they were mad at Paul, not Alexander the Jew and the other two Christians. Paul didn't go in. But when he gets to Jerusalem, that's what's going to blow up. And it goes on for chapters. So here's the five type scenes, reaction against the gospel as Paul preached. The first one, Philippi, Acts 16, 19 to 23. Second one, Thessalonica, Acts 17, 2 through 9. The third one, Corinth, Acts 18, 11 through 17. The fourth one, what we're covering here, Acts 19. The fifth one, it's on the slide right here, the, 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 just the smaller section where there's a re- reaction. The fifth will be Acts 21, 27, 36, Jerusalem. This is all going there. Just like the travel narrative holds these scenes uh, from Acts or Luke 9 to Luke 19, showing God's purpose. How about Luke 15? What about the parable of the Good Samaritan? What about the woman weep, weeping at Jesus' feet? What about uh, the prodigal son? There's more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than all the righteous that don't need repentance. Who's the righteous that don't need repentance? Nobody. There's self-righteous who think they don't need it. Dear ones, we love when people search the scriptures and we don't have a pope. We don't have anybody saying you've got to agree. But together we gather, we search the scriptures and hopefully we learn and grow. And this isn't keeping God from doing anything. This is honoring God whose revealed will is to uh, empower his people to be able to preach the gospel despite suffering and rejection. And that's what's filling up. And that's, I think, revealed right here. So I'll let you decide. If you want to see next week, those slides, they won't take the whole time. I'll go through the photo companion that I have that shows that the Artemis uh, narrative is historical. Uh, see, the picture after picture that this is reality. And by the way, the rocket ship is not really Artemis. <laughs> All right. Okay. <laughs> They're trying to get it to the moon. I don't know. Is that a good idea? I guess they will. But uh, let's pray. Thank you, dear Lord, for your goodness and kindness. And we do pray for the redemption of people. We pray for the peace of Jerusalem, knowing that Ultimately, there's a lot of sorrow in the meantime, but we do pray for that, that your purpose would go forward, that as the gospel goes out, we know that we are indeed seeing your purposes fulfilled. Give us boldness to proclaim your word and help us learn and support one another. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. And we pray for the suffering among us those who are sick, those who have lost loved ones, and many are hurting. May you give comfort to the afflicted as we journey together 
trusting you. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, dear saints.